I would like to thank the elders of the church for the opportunity to preach this sermon series for some decades. It's been in my heart and mind to write a book about the Ten Commandments, and I felt like I really needed to preach through the Ten Commandments one more time to be prepared to write that, and hopefully in about a year I'll be able to take some time to work on the book version to be published by the World Evangelical Alliance. I would... Seeing we're talking about prayer for the persecuted church today, I would request a prayer for our meeting I have this week in Geneva. Uh, about 30 representatives of all the different branches of Christianity get together once a year to just fellowship privately for a few days. That's this week. We always end up talking about persecuted Christians, even if it's not on the agenda officially. And uh, this week I'm planning to put on the agenda uh, prayer for the church in Angola, and I'll be presenting a report. The churches in Angola are being forced very suddenly to register with the government. Uh, this will very soon be causing chaos in the churches. Uh, specifically, house churches and home prayer groups are forbidden by law. The law takes effect, I think, this week. So please pray for them. Uh, religious freedom is an astonishing freedom. Right now, my grandchildren, are, I think, in our family are generation six that have enjoyed religious freedom. But if we go back one generation further to five generations before me, I'm pretty sure my ancestors were facing severe discrimination because of their faith. I think that's part of why they immigrated to North America. So please pray for these meetings. Let's pray now a moment. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, as we think one more time about the words that you had written in stone some 4,000 years ago, I pray that you would yeah, equip us to be the priestly people that you have called us to be. Equip us to represent you to this world, but also to represent our world to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we think about the Ten Commandments, now as we're, we've thought about them rather seriously for a few weeks, one of the questions that should come up in our minds is why? Why do the Ten Commandments exist? Why did God give his law in such a dramatic, overwhelming ceremony? I hope you noticed that the people were really, really frightened uh, in the deepest possible way. But why did God do this? Did they not know the difference between right and wrong? I don't think that's really the purpose. If we go back to the earlier parts of the Bible and read the stories about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we find that they knew the difference between right and wrong. And what they knew is very similar to what we found in the Ten Commandments. And in fact, sometimes their neighbors who did not believe in the God of the Bible uh, knew those commandments better than they did. They sometimes had some very embarrassing encounters with their neighbors who called believers to account for not following God's law. Well, why? Uh, some people have suggested that God gave the Ten Commandments as a kind of test, to see if the people would test trusting in the commandments and their ability to obey instead of trusting in God's promises and in his covenant. But that's not really what we see here and what we read. 
what we see in the texts that were read for us this morning is that they build on the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in a sense, really refer back to the promises that God made to Adam and Eve immediately after they fall. But there's an emphasis on what, that God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In Exodus chapter 2, for example, we read that God rescued them from Egypt, quote, because he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's clear that uh, obedience to the Ten Commandments is to be a response to God's covenant, a response to God's grace. It's not in order to earn anything or to get something from God. Now, some people have suggested that God gave the Ten Commandments as a kind of moral constitution or a moral foundation because they were in a, a massive transition. They had been a group of slaves, many thousands of slaves in Egypt, disorganized. Um, and now they were coming out and they were becoming a new nation. And they needed something written that would define the rules for them as a society. And that's surely probably true. Uh, and we read somewhere here that God gave his law to make them into a priestly nation. That's one of the reasons why God gave the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're told that uh, in Exodus 19, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now, the covenant, then, is centered here in the Ten Commandments. The covenant is much older than the Ten Commandments, but it has center, summary in the Ten Commandments, and that summary is God saying, I am your God and you are my people. This is how my people should live. It does not set aside any of the promises. It assumes and builds on all the promises beforehand. Now, what, is, what does it mean to be a priestly people? That's what we are, too, of course. What does a priest do? A priest is a go-between between God and people. The priest represents the people to God and represents God to the people. And that's our job description as the church, to be God's priestly people that we represent the entire world to God, bringing their needs to him, but also we represent God to all the nations around us, bringing his truth to them. It's quite a calling we have. That's why we should take a look at the Ten Commandments, because they equip us for this massive task that God has entrusted to the church, to the body of Christ, to be the priestly people, representing God to the people around us and representing people to God. We see that, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Uh, there, God is speaking and says, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Now, if, if God's people keep God's law, something happens. It will be noticed. We become a little, little bit different, maybe a lot different from the world around us because God's law finds an echo in our hearts. And one of the functions this has is to raise questions. 
people should ask us questions from time to time. Uh, why do you live the way you do? Why do you go to church? Uh, why do you think the way you do? Our whole lifestyle, our whole way of thinking is like a gigantic question mark to the world around us that they say, what's, what's up, guys? Why do you do this? And, that's, and then there arises what I sometimes call the status confessionis, the, st- the situation where a confession is almost required of us, in which we can expect God to give us the words we need at that moment to answer the questions that occur in the people around us. That's, that's what should happen to us. Another way of putting this, to say almost the same thing, is that the Ten Commandments are, I believe, God's own outline for a class on ethics and philosophy of religion. Uh, if you want a whole worldview, a whole philosophy of life, really what we need to do is think about the Ten Commandments for a little while. And you've got a whole way of life, a whole way of thinking about things there that uh, should be what changes us to be the kind of people God wants us to be. The Ten Commandments equip us. Uh, and as they do so, the Ten Commandments will tend to displace or replace the other ideas, value systems, philosophies of life that we may have had in the past. You see, when the people of, of uh, Israel were called out of Egypt in the Exodus, they were not all such very good Jews. They were probably, many of them, worshiping the, the sun god of Egypt, but also some of them were probably worshiping the various other gods and goddesses from Egypt and the Middle Eastern world, Mediterranean world. They had to give that up. They had to change that. That means their former religions had to be replaced. And the Ten Commandments were at the center of what would replace their former religions and philosophies of life. That has to go on now, continuously among us as believers. This is not a one-time event. It didn't just happen at the Exodus 4,000 years ago. It should be a process that's going on in all of us. And then, as God already promised to Abraham, then his word begins to go out from us into the world around us. Already in the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham, quote, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, that wasn't very specific. You might miss it if you didn't know what's coming later. But the idea that there would be a blessing for all people in the world that would come through God's covenant people. And we all now are the recipients of that blessing, that we can worship God together. Now, there were, of course, some big developments from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Once in a while, it's good to talk about them. Uh, One of those is that uh, after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit works in us in what I think is a different way than the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament. And this was promised already in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, we read, quote, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Now, during the time of Abraham, God's moral, moral law was a kind of informal moral consensus among the people of God. After the Exodus, it became much more explicit. It became the written moral foundation for their new community, the people of Israel. 
But for us now, there's one further step forward that the Holy Spirit writes that inside of us in some way that's new and I think more powerful than the people of God experienced. So that this is the Word and the Holy Spirit that equips us to take God's Word into this world. Now, as I've tried to compare the Old Testament and the New Testament, the best illustration I can find is that of a sporting match. Take basketball or football. In the Old Testament, God's people were playing defense. That means that their struggle was to maintain their own identity as the people of God. Yes, there were a few people outside of Israel who were real believers, and some of them are come into the Old Testament story. You have a constant series of people who were not from Israel, who joined Israel, who signed up. But now, in the New Testament, we have the ball. And it's our time, our opportunity, to score some points. And with the Holy Spirit, we are empowered to play offense, to take the gospel, and as well as God's law, to the world around us. And that's our calling. That's what we have now as the people of God. This is part of what we are gifted to do. The different gifts we have in our congregation, in the churches at large, are equipping us to play offense, to score some points for the kingdom of God. Now, related to that is a transition of in the Old Testament, the people of God were gathered together into one nation state, more or less. Not entirely, but more or less one nation state. Now we're dispersed. Now we are in all the nations. And there are today believers in, I think, almost every country in the world, uh, whom if you sat and talked with them, you'd say, yes, they sound like believers. We'd love to have them in our prayer group. So the words that we read from 1 Peter 2 are happening, and they are an application of the words we read from Exodus 19 about becoming a priestly people. First, Exodus 19 was written to the people shortly after they came out of Egypt. First Peter was written to the people of God who were then mostly dispersed through the Roman Empire. Today we're dispersed around the world. So a crucial question is then, if that's why God gave us his law, how should that function in our lives? What kinds of roles, functions, uses does God's law have in our lives and in the lives of people around us? Uh, This will help us, if we understand this, to take on our role as priests uh, more effectively, I think. Now, I think there are three primary uses or functions of God's law. That's not my own. I didn't dream that up. uh, Our Protestant ancestors from 500 years ago taught more or less the same things, just slight changes in terminology. But uh, talk about three functions or uses of God's moral law. The first is that God's law, as it comes into this world through his creation and through his people, helps to restrain sin a little bit. Uh, this, we see some of that in the Sermon on the Mount, even. Remember that when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, there were several references back to the Ten Commandments. The fact of the mountain is the biggest one. And then the content, and Jesus quoted the Ten Commandments, uh, I don't know, four or five times in the Sermon on the Mount, clearly intending to make this the, the development of for his time. 
Uh, there was no thunder and lightning. Why? Because the one who was preaching was the one who, in two or three years, was going to die on the cross for our salvation, to provide a redemption. But in that sermon, Jesus emphasized the function that we have in relationship to the world around us. He said in Matthew 5, quote, You are the salt of the earth. Salt, of course, was a preservative. They did not have refrigerators at then. Uh, it helps prevent moral decay. That's our job. When we look at moral decay in whatever society we call home, we should say uh, it's not they who are so much as false, so much as that we have a job to do. We have a big job to do. We are to be salt in this world. And being salt in this world is part of us accepting our role as God's priestly people. It's made possible by the gospel and God's moral law. We stand between God and the world around us. Of course, God is always speaking through his creation, his general revelation. But that does not say anything about the gospel of Christ. We are the ones who have to say, yeah, you already know something about right and wrong. But there's also a gospel, a good news, that God sent his son for us and for our redemption. Astonishing news. We see some of that happening already in the Old Testament. Now, my favorite of the Old Testament prophets is the prophet Amos. I've been reading Amos uh, for off and on for 30 years, and they always seem to come back to it. Uh, in the book of Amos, in the first chapter, or almost two chapters, Amos, who is a prophet of Israel, is, uh, excuse me, from Judah, he talks about the nations around around him, all the surrounding nations. There are six or seven nations that he mentions, and he condemns them for their very specific sins. Uh, some of the nations around practiced a high degree of human trafficking. He condemned them for that. Some of them were practicing outrageous war crimes. He condemned them for that. Uh, and uh, some are just practicing continual war. Now, what Amos said to the nations around him probably did not lead thousands of those people to come to faith in Yahweh. But it did help to clarify and implement the role that God has given his people always as the priestly people of representing him to the nations around. So we see some of this in the Old Testament prophets. But of course now, all of us, are to take up that role and accept our job as being God's prophets in our world. Or think of the stories of Daniel. Probably you recall some of the stories. Some of Daniel's events were kind of dramatic, like the lion's den. Uh, he's famous for coming out of the lion's den alive. But never forget that the people who put him there did not come out of the lion's den alive. When it became clear the big conspiracy that led to Daniel being thrown in there, those people all went in, and the lions had a feast. So again, you see, God's people already at that time had this role of being God's representatives in the societies around them. In Daniel's case, he was a, basically a prisoner of war. Now, in all these cases and more that we see in the Bible, God's people are functioning as a priestly people, representing God and his word into the societies around them. And this continues today. Uh, as I uh, read our history, we often see 
that Christians have carried on a key role at turning points in their in history, uh, in our, our American history that I know better than some others. Uh, we see in the Declaration of Independence that some of the people who wrote that were Christians, and uh, they uh, included some of that into the Declaration of Independence, people being endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. But we also see some of that in European history. If you look at the founding documents of the European Union, you see that some of those people were Christians who wrote that. They talked about uh, restraints in society. They talked about limits on government because they knew governments can sin. We see some of that in the United Nations documents. A few of the people who helped write the founding documents of the United Nations were Christians who were consciously trying to serve as a priestly people as they contributed to the formation of the United Nations. So this is happening, and it means it can be done. We have done it. But that's not the only... Now, excuse me, my computer just crashed, so I'll have to go on without. That's not the only function of God's law, of being uh, serving to bring his word into society. It also makes us more aware of sin. In uh, Romans chapter 3, I think it's verse 20, Paul writes about the use of God's law, and he says, by the use of God's law, we become aware of our sin. God's law always points out sin to us. Now, of course, that's important at the time when we came to Christ. We knew that we were sinners, and we needed Christ. But that continues, uh, or should continue regularly. In our prayer this morning, we had a prayer confessing sins. Why? Because God's law makes us aware that we have sinned. I'm sure every one of us, uh, even this morning, had some temptation to, uh, to break God's law in some way. You coveted. You probably didn't murder anyone this morning, but you probably had some covetous thoughts. Uh, maybe you, I won't go farther. It might be too private. Uh, but that's where we are. We, the law, God's law always confronts us. It says you shall not, and a little bit of us says, but I still want to. That's why we have to confess our sins. And we see that in the Bible. How, think of how many of the Psalms, some of the wonderful moving Psalms, for example, Psalm 51, are confessions of sin, uh, serious sins. And the psalmist is just moved by his guilt and confesses his sins, begging for God's forgiveness. So that is a, a second function or use of God's law. It calls us to continued repentance. But that's, there's also a third use or function of God's moral law. That's what I sometimes call the providing a structure for the life of faith, a life of obedience. Because my computer stopped. I don't know exactly what term I used in the overhead, but you'll probably recognize it as similar. Uh, and that's something we need, really need. We need to be constantly guided. We need to constantly think, well, what are my priorities? What are the right attitudes, the right feelings I should have? Uh, how should I think about this, or how should I think about that? And that comes not in a mechanical way. It comes by regular interaction with the Bible, whether we're writing, reading it ourselves or in community in the body of Christ. That's one of the, so that we are instructed. It makes us into the kind of people we should be, 
That's why we sometimes describe Bible reading and worship as spiritual disciplines. They form us into the kinds of people that we have to be in order to do the things that God has called us to do. So we have these multiple functions, and it would, it's a mistake when we emphasize one of these too heavily. Now, sometimes Christians have done that. Sometimes if Christians who all they talk about is the law condemning us. They don't realize it has some better other functions as well. Uh, recently, I don't know why, but the function of God's law as restraining sin has tend to be, tended to be forgotten a little bit among Protestants. If you go back and read uh, Christian books of three or four or five hundred years ago, they talked about that quite frequently. Uh, not so many Christian books today talk about that. I'm not sure why, but it's, a, I think, a weakness in our Christian literature. And we, we can overcome that, though. We need to think, remember that God's law restrains sin. It provides uh, a little lid on things. So things don't get as bad as they should be. Now, what should we do? We have, I hope, I'm hopeful that many of us have thought seriously about some of the commandments this year as I've been talking about them, I have. It's been very uh, fruitful for me to work at connecting God's word and our world. I've learned a whole lot. I hope you have as well. But what should we do about this? My proposal is that we conclude our time this morning by saying together Psalm number one. It should appear in the overhead in a moment. Psalm number one. And uh, if you can, could you please rise? And unfortunately, I can't see the overhead. Trev, would you help us? Would you come up and take a mic and lead us in re reading Psalm number one to each other? Let's uh, read together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. <laughs>